0: Welcome to Catholic Stuff You Should Know, the J-10 Initiative. Talk. There you go, we're rolling. Hey, here we go. Do Let's you, you do you, okay, if this you listen on to it, if, you, if you're listening to the podcast, do you listen to it in 1.5, 2.0, or regular speed? Exactly. Normal.
1: I know. Hey, uh, welcome to the podcast, Father John. Father Mike. Father Mike, uh, good to be together here on a uh Lovely. You're still speaking 1.5? 1. 1. 1.5. I actually think I do speak 1.5. I've <laughs> listened true. to myself recently. I had to record a lecture, and I was like, dude, you go too fast. You got to slow it down. It's hard pause to go is... slow. Man. Yeah. Right.
0: And in, in preaching, I'm the same way, that I, I just don't pause. Right. And it's so, like, I don't um, fluctuate right. the, the voice and intonation and everything, so it gets really just like droning. Yeah. Droning is that the right word? Yeah, it's just buzzing until people fall asleep. And, then, and I have and a lot to say. Over. And then it's people fall. It's asleep. over. I know. Well, here we are. It's summertime.
1: It feels like summertime, doesn't it?
0: Yeah, I wore shorts playing golf, and I froze my legs off. They turned purple. But the tulips are blooming, and that's my favorite thing ever.
1: Are you a fan of this uh, top golf place? Are you a big fan of it?
0: <laughs> I've played top golf. I. I don't know. I have mixed feelings. Uh-huh. Like I haven't learned, you have to know like the right games to play. So top golf is like a driving range right. with different holes that you can shoot toward and then you get different points. But I don't, I, like I kept losing to my brother-in-law because I would just try to hit the back of the net. Uh, yeah. Like try to just drive it really, really far. But he, know, he knows the game and the game is actually more about precision. So right. he's shooting for the flags. I'm just trying to crank it. And I've lost every time.
1: So let me ask you a follow-up question to that. What do you think that, like, the the top golf regular guys, you know, guys who are just there, like the guys who have platinum memberships and they go weekdays, 10 to 5, they know all the front desk, all the, the bar maidens by name. Do you think those are, is he a real
0: golfer or is it a different sport? Oh, I thought you wanted a nickname for him. Something that rhymes with Sushrags. rags. <laughs> 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 um it's it is a real sport but it's a particular kind of sport. So it's like I'm trying to compare it maybe like like would, I it, don't be know, yard would it be a different bowling or would it be a different olympic
1: sport if you were the, the olympic committee.
0: I hope they don't make it an olympic sport, but it's top definitely golf. no. You know what? I t- asked the guy yesterday uh or the day before when I was golfing. What what do you think about top golf? What if my buddy goes regularly? <laughs> Is he gonna get better at golf? And he says, "No, he's gonna get better at drinking because <laughs> it's like snacks and drinking. Do you have to buy them? Uh, no, but
1: it's how could you not when you're at Topgolf? Yeah, so,
0: yeah. Well, they have this cool thing where there's like a donut hole that you infuse. You stick a syringe in there and then fill it with hot caramel. Right.
1: That's I don't to even improve like improve your drive twenty percent. You like that though? I do. We are only uh, a top golf. We're making fun of a guy in the room right now, who we're going to feature on this podcast. Uh, our good buddy Father Will Schmidt. You could hear him laughing Yay. in the background. Who is a top golf extraordinaire? Uh, he is there. That is certainly his. his
0: three hundred sixty-five balls at a time. He hit three
1: hundred sixty-five balls today, just casually. So welcome, Will Schmidt, to the uh, podcast. We're we're kind of doing a Chinese fire drill thing here with the uh, mics tonight. So welcome, buddy. You he- can. You yeah. guys
2: have done a total disservice to Top Golf. Okay. <laughs> uh, first of all, you can the food there is amazing.
1: It is. It's what delicious.
0: About, have you had those
2: donut holes? Yeah, I have had the donut holes and it's not just caramel. They have like vanilla and chocolate. Um, yeah. But I haven't You're a
0: regular. You drank the Kool-Aid.
2: Uh, yeah, well, I am a regular, uh, but I don't get the donut holes very often. Uh, I usually get their flatbreads, their barbecue... Uh,
1: those, those, I can attest to those are delicious. Oh, man,
2: those are amazing. Global's
1: not even here, and we're talking about food. <laughs> Four minutes in. This, should,
2: this, this podcast should be
1: featured on the Food Network. All we talk about is food and then a little theology at the end of it. So That's true. It's, but it is true. The flatbreads are amazing there. Yeah. And the beer selection's great. The service is good. And uh, it's a very
2: innovative It is. It's, it's a glorified driving range with food and beer. Although, typically, I go at 10 in the morning and I don't get beer so
1: that's probably a good thing
2: pepper. just just a diet coke and a water uh, i do know almost all the servers by name and they all know who i am so what so, does that mean
0: does that mean you're a good golfer
2: or not, does a, well, although i, I well or doesn't guy. mean i'm a good golfer that's a good question uh, no i'm not a good golfer although one of the way they
1: all wait, know who i am, yeah, I who I am. i'm yeah. notoriously
2: that's true one of the waitresses said that I'm actually a good golfer, comparatively speaking, to the people that go there.
1: The 10 a.m. crowd? Yeah. Yeah. Well, Well, Father Will Schmidt. Uh, That's me. Father Mike and I are going to kind of uh, tag team back and forth. But first off, uh, I, I know my co-host here, we've been doing this for a long time, he likes to ask some random questions. So before we get into the topic, we're going to ask you some kind of Random question. So Okay. Yeah. He's my
2: sweet mate right now.
1: Oh he is. That's okay. Right. Yeah,
2: we call it Jack and John because Jack and Jill doesn't No that doesn't, doesn't work. Right.
1: It doesn't work. So yeah. so yeah, what are you doing here? And uh well, what am you, I what yeah, how I do you find yourself on this podcast?
2: <laughs> I am on a sabbatical, uh, which has a very negative uh connotation to it, unfortunately. Uh sabbatical is seen by many as like you're struggling in your priesthood and you need a break, but that's not Uh, What's going on? Sabbath. Yeah, it means the Sabbath, right? So it's a a period of time after you can take it after 10 years in my diocese where you get a couple months off and you get to do something cool. And so I'm living with the Companions of Christ because I really want to start the Companions when I get back to Phoenix. (gasps) Uh, And uh, yeah, and then I'm helping out at the seminary, helping out at Our Lady of Lords Parish. And I've been working on a program for the Diocese of Phoenix to mentor new pastors, because we've had some just tough, tough breaks for some guys, um, and it just seems like it's a lot of responsibility to be a pastor, and they really need a, a mentor. They need somebody who can. Walk so you're teaching
0: them. the pastors how to mentor the. New yeah. Guys, or you're teaching the
2: new guys how to. Uh,
0: how do you? What's the mentee? What do you mentee, call
2: mentor, and mentee? Okay. Well,
0: yeah. okay. So give me the number one priority for
2: mentoring. Well, that's kind of a that's kind of a crazy no, question. Number one, number one, uh, you need no. s- you need somebody to walk with you. Okay, that's number one. It's companionship. It's fraternity. It's somebody who's been doing this a while who can be there to support you and walk with you and bounce ideas. You can bounce ideas off of them. Uh, somebody when you get a really nasty email and you don't know what to do with it. You are not know how to process it. You can talk to a guy who's received plenty of those and he can help you, you know, put that, put that into perspective, you know, or yeah. when you have like an incredible moment and you just want to share it with somebody uh, and you can share it with a guy who's had a lot of those moments and he can just affirm you and he can help help you grow. Really? Yeah, I mean it's a lot of things. But. These days, we
0: have to be real intentional about that because a lot of young priests or like newly ordained priests become pastors real quick. I was twenty nine, and there's so much to that job and to yeah. that life that you—it's hard to learn everything by the time you get. I mean, you're not going to learn everything; it's impossible. But you want to learn as much as you can with a good mentor. Yeah, you know? yeah,
2: And and I had a mentor. We didn't uh, officially meet. We didn't have a program. It was just very informal, and so I think I talked to him once or twice when I first got started about, is this normal, you know, these kinds of scenarios and questions, but we didn't, uh, we didn't have a formal program, and so that's what I've been working on um, when the guys are off at their assignments. I've been hanging out at the house and reading books and putting together a program. All right, here's
0: a shift. How long
2: does it take you to grow a beard like that? Yeah. Santa uh, Claus, I haven't old man. Se- gosh, I haven't seen my face since 2016. Wow. So. <laughs> but you trim it. That's not all that- I do. I go to a barber. I found a nice Jewish barber here in, uh, in uh, Denver. That sounds like... That sounds like Gobel.
1: Kelly doesn't do beards, no. by the way. We learned that on Monday night. We had uh, Goebbels birthday party, and uh, Kelly just said, she said, no, sorry, I don't do beards. <laughs> she draws the line there.
2: I, I was just glad that she told me no. Yeah. Because, you know, sometimes... You're
1: lucky she didn't try and sell you balayage for that <laughs> <laughs> Now... Um, you grew up on the back of a Harley. I did. A couple of road trips to Alaska. Yep. Been to Sturgis. What was the youngest age you went to Sturgis?
2: Uh, I was three months old. That's crazy. Yeah. Not, not, that trip, I did not go on the back of a Harley. Okay. We took the uh, family van okay. that year. Fun
0: fact. Yeah. Fun fact, uh, Father Will used to read books on the back of the Harley.
2: I did. I, I read all the Michael Crichton novels on the Alaska trip. How you can do that with the wind whipping? I don't
0: understand. Well, that. so
2: you have to... This yeah, is Well, this is before sick. smartphones, too. So you had to make a guess. Like Because I had a pouch. Basically, there was like a like seat pad between my dad and myself, and we had a pouch in there. And I could have one thing in that pouch. It was either a book or a Game Boy. That was it. Yeah. So I had to make any, any stretch of road that we took. We, we didn't go more than 100 miles at a time before you stop and get gas. So... I just had to, I had to look at the weather and make, and make a decision. Am I going to put something in there? Am I going to not put something in there? What am I going to put in there? And then when I was done reading a book, I had to leave the book because there was no room. Oh how so, do you turn pages with the wind going? Well, you learn, you learn pretty quick. I'm impressed. Dude. I mean, you hold, I'm impressed. it's all about how you hold the book and, you know.
0: This is, I'm imagining the eight-year-old Will reading <laughs> Jurassic Park 3 or whatever, um, all right, so there's that one. You are a bit a voracious reader.
2: I love reading.
0: And a reader of Josef Ratzinger. Oh, yeah. What is your favorite Ratzinger book? Ooh. Ooh. He's read like everything. Yeah. And Ratzinger has written a lot.
2: Uh, well, I love Spirit of the Liturgy. Yeah. Uh, that's probably my favorite. That or Introduction to Christianity. Okay. I think we've talked about both of those Yeah. at some point. I've read both of them three times. Ooh. And I went to a conference at Notre Dame on the 50th anniversary of Introduction to Christianity, which was awesome. Wow. And they just published all of the lectures from that. Um, From the conference? Yeah. You can get it on Amazon. You can get everything Mm -hmm. on Amazon. Shout
0: out also to Bergsma because Father Will just took a road trip from Phoenix to Denver and listened to like 30 hours of Bergsma. It wasn't 30. It was just 10. But he's he's a boss, Bergsma.
1: The Bergsma boss. All right, Will, tuck that uh, microphone in real tight. Okay. All right. So, uh, you know, we're not here just to talk about Will. We're here to talk about some of Will's crazy ideas, uh, which are awesome and very, not just crazy, but they're, they're very compelling. So let's go back to Flagstaff uh, yeah. last June. So this is before you cooked up this uh, crazy adventure called Living with Five Companions That's right. in Capitol Hill, Denver. It was in utero. Yeah, it was. You were, you were, you were kicking around the idea. Yeah. Um, we still had to sweet-talk Larkin into liking you, which now he does. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but that, that, that took a little That guy's going to miss me. Yeah, he is. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> I'm going to miss it's him. It's going to take
1: too. two Baroque Vicars to fill the <laughs> hole you have, uh, literally.
2: Well, he did pick up a second parish, though. So.
1: <laughs> but we're sitting out back, having a cigar uh, and a scotch, and talking, um, and there's a number of seminarians around his Baroque Vicar father, Dan Vanyo, our old uh, classmate from St. John Vianney, yep. and... Um, Will said a couple of things that night that I was like, "We have to podcast on this." I was I was really taken by it. Pretty good. I knew you had a a particular love and uh, interest in the liturgy, uh, but some of the things you were mentioning around music, yeah, and the 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 generational yeah thing in the church that these different generations have different kind of uh, affections or interests or um kind of like a lot of kind of sentimental attachment to certain things or or reversions to things and i was just really struck by how you presented that and so i was like we got to get him on the podcast and it took a couple of months we got it lined up bourbon's rolling and uh <laughs> so we're really happy to uh to have you so mike and i are going to kind of chill over here and fire off some questions and uh, some but i want you to just take it away Sure. Um, so go
2: Yeah, so I guess the conversation started because we were talking about the experience of trying to implement features of sacred music in a parish. Because guys are trying this throughout the country, and some are met with great success, some are met with uh, a lot of resistance. And that was kind of the the context behind the the conversation. And uh, I implemented sacred music at my previous parish, and uh, it was met with some success, and it was met with some great resistance. It was pretty much a mixed bag. But what I noticed right off the bat was that the vast majority of the people who hated it um, were of a particular demographic. They were they were of the generation, baby boom generation.
0: Now, before you get into deep, can yeah. I get a definition of sacred music? The way you're using it?
2: Yeah. So I'm talking about. Um, well, when you read the church's documents on music, on uh, music in the liturgy, you start to see. Uh, kind of a trend of chant being at the heart of it, right? So uh, the documents will talk a lot about Gregorian chant as the pride of place in the liturgy. Uh, and Gregorian chant, that makes sense, right? Because it's the music of the Roman Catholic rite. Like when you hear it, you go, oh, that's Roman Catholic, right? But in particular, it's it's chant-based. It's chant-based, it's it's scripture-based. Um, and you're going to have the chanting of the mass parts, you're going to have the chanting of psalms more so than than hymns. Uh, and you might have a Gregorian style to it, you might have polyphony, um, and you're going to tend to have more of the organ or a cappella singing. So that's kind of what I'm, what I'm speaking about. Just
0: as a, like a historical note, now this isn't the experience of most Catholics, right? but the, all of the rites and throughout the history of Christianity – all of the different uh, liturgies have mostly been chanted. That's right, right? So if you go to um, a, a liturgy outside of the Latin Rite, you're going to see almost everything chanted, yep, for their uh, for their mass,
2: pretty right? much, yeah, almost everything that's said.
0: And somehow we've developed a kind of flexibility around that, mm-hmm. and uh, there are hymns in other um, in the other rites. but our hymn, uh, our, our hymnody is has taken a lot more um, assimilation to various times and places, and um, sure. But just know that sacred music when it, when the church says it has privileged place, pride of place, and that there's kind of a, a standard that is expected, or that there's an attempt to get closer and closer to a standard bar. Right. It's. In part because historically, not just like a traditionalist thing like 200 years ago, but f- throughout the history, um, chant has been the regular way of praying right. and praying communally.
2: Yeah, and I, I liken it to this. Uh, you know, we all know the happy birthday song, right? Um, and in fact, if, if I were to try to like wish you happy birthday and Father Mike rap by just saying, happy birthday to you, happy birthday to you, happy birthday, Father Mike. Happy birthday to well, you. You could
0: smile.
2: Well, you would be I, I could. I could smile when I'm saying that. But you would be kind of like annoyed, like, dude, why don't you just sing it? Everybody knows the song. Well, imagine flip-flopping that. Imagine the mass was actually designed to be sung, but now everybody's saying it. You know, but we don't know any better because it's just been said for so long and that's our lived experience of it. But it was actually designed to be sung. Like every part of the mass can be sung. And in fact, when you when you learn about the church's the history of the church's liturgy, the high mass was always the sung mass. Why is it called the high mass? Because it was said in a high note because the priest was singing it (laughs) so everybody could hear it. The low mass, the priest said it in a low voice. You couldn't hear it, right? So So the high mass is really the sung mass. It's like the model of, like mass in its most glorified form. And every other mass, whether it was the misa cantata or the misa recitata, which is, they had a minimized version of the sung mass, and then they had the recited mass or so the low mass. Those were participation in the high mass, but a, but not in the fullest form. If that makes sense.
1: Now, um, if somebody was listening to this and is already like, "There's like sirens going off," yeah, uh, yeah, I think we want to start by saying uh, this conversation is about what is the Novus Ordo. So it's not we're not right. talking about going back to the old the Tridentine mass, the Tridentine no. mass. We're not talking about that. That's not a priority for us. Nope. Um, I, you know, we have the, the kind of the ghost of Father Keith Kenny in the room with us right now. <laughs> we got a buddy who's done.
2: We got an empty chair. Yeah, for the return of Keith. For, yeah, we'll <laughs> pour out a
1: little libation for him. <laughs> Father Keith has done tons of research with you on this topic, and yeah. it's been very compelling for us because one of the things that I'm personally uh, convicted of is we got to double down on Vatican II. Yep. We got to recommit. Because people are going crazy and they're saying crazy things, yep. and there's these stupid people with podcasts, unlike us, all right, <laughs> who are totally accurate and truthful at all times. But there's a lot of there's a lot of fake news out there about sure. Vatican II ruined the church, Vatican II ruined the liturgy. The purpose of Vatican II wasn't even to reform the liturgy. This is stuff that came later. But you and you and Keith kind of put your finger on a couple of things that got jettisoned, baby out with the bathwater. Uh, that the church wasn't even calling for, and if we're going to work to implement Vatican II better with that hermeneutic of continuity that Ratzinger is calling us to, if we're going to really stay committed to it, which I think we are, and our companion brothers are, right, uh, and our seminary is, and we're not just going to say this thing's all hogwash and we got to go back to the 19th century or something, um, then we got to say, okay, but then what what got tossed out? And uh, I think you you've got a pretty good sense of that.
0: So can you- Yeah. uh, Go back to the parish. You were talking about trying to implement things. Yeah. Use the, yeah. Start with the parish example again, and then we'll build
2: on that. Sure. So one of the things we did is we, we started introducing the entrance antiphon and the communion antiphon, right? So that's a piece of scripture chosen by the church. Usually it's a Psalm um, that's given for that particular mass or for a group of masses. So like, If you look at Advent, for example, Advent has particular entrance antiphons that the church envisions that are sung um, when you you enter into the church and you approach the altar. It's almost like the church is saying, hey, we have this scripture passage that we want on the minds and the hearts of the faithful as this liturgy begins. Now, most of the time, those uh, antiphons, those psalms and their their corresponding, uh, you know, um, stanzas are kind of tossed aside and replaced with "O Come, O Come, Emmanuel."
0: <laughs> right. Well,
2: doesn't it say? Doesn't it say an antiphon or a hymn? R- right. But what happens is, it, it the antiphon is the preference, or it can be replaced with a suitable hymn. But the problem is, is that most of the time it's just a it's just a hymn. Yeah. Which I'm not a. Don't get me wrong. I'm not opposed to a hymn in place of the antiphon, but. We're trying to rediscover these particular scripture passages that are given by the church for us to have in our minds and our hearts at these particular for moments. For that, that liturgy, yeah, yeah, and that's why I, I feel like the the lay faithful get cheapened a bit, um, because they get O Come, O Come Emmanuel, which don't get me wrong, that's a that's a beautiful a beautiful hymn, but a lot of people don't realize like the Advent antiphons are a dialogue between God and His people over four weeks. And yeah. we don't get that dialogue because it's replaced with O Come, O come, Emmanuel. I mean, I went to a mass one time, I celebrated a mass, where um, the entire mass setting was set to O Come, o Come, Emmanuel. Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of hosts. And you seemed to disapprove. <laughs> well, it was just like, it was just overdone, you know what I mean? It's like, yeah. uh, all I heard was O Come, O come, Emmanuel for an hour, you know? Well, so, okay, so these, these antiphons are very proper to the particular masses. Right.
0: They are longstanding within right. the tradition. Yep. They're usually scriptural, yep. and they're simple. They're so always they, scriptural. They're usually a psalm. Yeah, and they set the, they set the tone for that liturgy. They right. fit within the liturgical season and cycle. Um, what do you think about doing the antiphon and a hymn? I've seen that done.
2: Yeah, that could be done. I think um, the idea is that the hymn comes first. So at Lords we we flip-flop it, they sing the antiphon, and then they tell everybody to turn to the particular page uh, of their Breaking Bread hymnal, uh, which is just, it's backwards because it's called the entrance antiphon. So it's meant to be sung as the priest and the servers are entering into the church towards the altar,
0: right? So, so or... Could you do like a hymn and then while you're incensing the altar, they're singing the antiphon?
2: Yeah, so that's kind of what we did in my last parish. We had a... We might to stand, we sang a couple of verses of a hymn and then we moved into the antiphon. So we did hymns, but but we also kind of cleaned up the hymns. We got rid of a lot of the the stuff that I would say is kind of cheesy and hokey and some of the stuff from like the heretical. Or heretical, so, or heretical I mean, yeah. yeah. Some yeah, some of those heretical. hymns are are flat out heretical. Um can so so mostly of, just hokey I think yeah you know, yeah or, or easily interpreted one way or the other All right, so there's one at Loosely. the beginning
0: and then there's one at communion
2: right and there's also an offertory but that one's that one is replaced most often with um, like a hymn or oftentimes it's a, a Scola piece that's done by like a group of singers that's it's meant to uh, accompany the liturgical action. So that, that's the other thing about chant is it's, it's meant to accompany, it's meant to clothe the text. So it's not meant to be melody driven, it's meant to be driven by the word. Um, and it's meant to accompany an action, right? So as, as the priest is preparing the altar, as people are bringing forth the gifts, these hymns that are sung are meant to accompany that action. And it's meant to stop once the action is done. So if you ever go to a mass and it's the offertory, and the priest is done, the altar is set, and they they just keep singing for another minute. That's contrary to the to the notion of music in the liturgy because the action is over. The music should fade out, and that's why chant is more easily, um, a, you know, used in that scenario. Because with chant, you can kind of fade out faster than you can with a hymn. You gotta. But finish. you could fade out the chants too. Yeah, you that's don't have to
0: finish the whole thing. You or don't. repeat you, the verses. You, all this. You, stuff.
2: And in fact, uh, a good choir director will notice that the priest is almost done. And we'll skip a stanza and go into a glory. Be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, and then repeat the antiphon one more time or whatever. All right, I got
0: two questions. One is, and you can answer them in whatever order or choose not to answer either one. The okay, we're talking about uh, restoration of sacred music. Yeah, that's antiphons and then chanting. What else? Yeah, chanting, chanting. and then the other one is uh, what was the response of your parish?
2: Yeah, yeah, you told me a
0: little bit about it, but there was kind of some pushback, and then maybe they got used. Sure. So, what what are the other elements of the sacred music in terms of liturgy, and then yeah, this reaction from the parish?
2: Yeah. So we also brought in a tracker organ, so which is a uh, it's a smaller organ that uh, it's not electronic, Um, like a Wurlitzer. Oh, I don't know if it's a Wurlitzer. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I love the Wurlitzer. No, you know, a lot of parishes have like electronic organ. This one is actually a legit organ. They had to take it apart, uh, have a special truck, bring it over, and they had to reassemble it. And it took a couple of days. We got it from a Lutheran church, actually, that was getting rid of its smaller organ and replacing, uh, re- replacing it with a gigantic organ. And so they, they just needed it out. So they sold it to us for like half, half of its value. So we had this awesome tracker, a little tracker organ that we put in. Um, and that was to basically introduce an instrument that behind the human voice is second when it comes to the primary instrument in the liturgy. The primary instrument in the liturgy is the human voice. Right? So um, like that, that says something. Like what we sing is the primary instrument it's, our, it's, our, it's the voices of the faithful It's the voices of the people And then the second is the organ And why the organ? Because it's the instrument that's, That actually sounds most like the, the variety of voices That you would find in a human person
0: And it's not percussive It helps people to sing well
2: Right, it's not percussive Like a piano or a drum Or something like that It's easy to sing with
1: Yeah It's a nice adjective I've never used that one before.
2: Which one? Percussive. Percussive, yeah. yeah. That's
1: good. Well
0: done.
2: Yeah, there you go. You know? All
0: right, so the, the response of your parish.
2: Yeah, so we, so we introduced the organ. We introduced a lot of chant, and we did it at all the masses. So a lot of guys will, like, phase it in. They'll have, like, one mass where they still play a lot of these hokey, borderline heretical, if not heretical songs that people have sentimental attachment to. Um, and then they'll do their, like, sacred music mass.
0: Wait, okay, so do you still have a choir? Are you teaching the choir to now chant alongside hymnody, or are you yeah. jettisoning the hymnody? No, we didn't and... jettison
2: it all together. We just purged it a little bit.
0: Okay, but it's the same choirs? Or are you training scholas? Or yeah,
2: what? so when we hired a brand-new director of sacred music, I did a national job search. I flew people out and interviewed them, and we chose this amazing... Uh, amazing young woman named claire halber and she is she's actually a consecrated uh, virgin lived in the world uh, her consecration was this past august
0: congratulations claire
2: yeah and she's wonderful and uh she has built up a uh children's choir that's now up to like 140 kids wow. we had zero kids and now we have 140 wow. can't really hear myself anymore is that You're okay. we're okay all right yeah, you sound good. sweet i'm not used to your headphones
0: Yeah, it's the headphones that get goofy. No, it's okay.
1: It's because you're used to having a good setup. Father Will has his own uh, podcast. If you like what you're hearing, listen Uh. to the Northern Fathers. Right. Thanks for that plug. Man. No problem, man. You guys that. are doing good work. You and Father Matt Lowry. That's right. All right. So it's March of 1967. It's two years after the, sec- <laughs> after the Second Vatican Council has closed. and uh, We didn't
2: even get to what I want to talk about. That's okay. Keep going. I love it. Sorry,
1: man. We'll circle back. But then uh, Paul VI puts out this document that uh, only two people in the universe have read, you and Keith, <laughs> <laughs> called Musicum Sacrum. That's right. Right? Yeah. But for you guys, this is, a, this is an important piece that was completely yes. uh, tossed aside.
2: Totally. Uh, partly because of the Novus Ordo. Because, so it came, it, come, it came out in what, November of 67? And then people are starting to look at it, and then all of a sudden the Novus Ordo comes out in December in 69. Uh, and that kind of changed things. So people kind of put it on the back burner because they were trying to figure out, oh, now we have this new mass, and it's in the vernacular, and what do we do? Right. So the Musicum Sacrum was the document that was supposed to be the musical implementation of Vatican II. So, if, when you read Sacra Sanctum Concilium, that's the Vatican II document in the liturgy, Musicum Sacrum was supposed to do the practicals of what is music going to look like with this reform. Okay? And they laid out music in the liturgy in three different degrees. So they said, what they said is um, the the entire sung mass still exists if you want to do it. The entire low mass still exists if you just want to recite it. But if you're going to do something in the middle, we're going to prioritize what is to be sung. And then you can mix and match based on these like principles. And so the first degree is the dialogues with the people. So like the Lord be with you and with your spirit. Um, The collect, it's the opening prayer prayer over the gifts, um, the prayer at the end of Mass after Communion, Um, you have the preface with its dialogue, you have the Mass parts that involve the people, um, with the exception of the Gloria, Um, and then you have, like, but like you have the Holy, 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 the Memorial Acclamation. Actually, the Memorial Acclamation is not mentioned because at that time it was still said by the priest alone or the server. I can't remember.
0: these are, they're saying, these are the these are the priorities for
2: singing. Yeah, these, All are, the, of these, these are the most important things to be sung. So what, okay. they, what Musicum Sacrum said is, if you're going to sing anything, start with these. It uh, sounds like everything. No, it's not, because notice what's not there. The, the Gloria is not there. The Lamb, uh, or I'm sorry, the, uh, the Responsorial Psalm is not there. The Entrance antiphon's not there. The Communion Antiphon is not there. Uh, the Creed is not there. Um, the readings are not there in the first degree. Like, the first degree are the parts that belong to the people and the the most important parts of the prayers that the priest leads. So you have the prayers, you have the Our Father with its introduction and conclusion, right? So then it says, if you're singing everything in the first degree, you can mix and match everything of the second or the third degree. You can mix and match whatever you want, but it's presuming that you're singing everything in the first degree. Right, So then it's like, okay, you want to do the Gloria? Great. You want to do the Creed? Great. You want to do the readings? Great. You want to do the antiphons or some other suitable hymn? Great. But notice that the, the antiphons, so the entrance antiphon, the offertory antiphon, the communion antiphon, and the recessional are all of the lowest degree. But yet when you go to most American masses in the Novus Ordo, what do you find? You find the, what we call the four hymn sandwich. You find hymns in place of those chants.
1: Is that we, you, and Keith? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
2: do we. What do you mean? The for him, who calls it? Who's we? Who calls it oh, the for him sandwich? Oh, yeah, Keith, Keith and I call it the for him <laughs> sandwich. Arizona, yeah, we call it the for him sandwich. Because those were chants that the priest recited quietly, that people began to sing while the priest was reciting the prescribed chants.
0: Now, I got That's to... how that developed. Uh, not that I have the right to uh, protest here, mm. but... It's protest away. I'm used to I it. was just looking at this on uh, yeah. John's phone. That third degree has the alleluia before the gospel. That's right. Oh, come on. That's man. right.
2: That's of the lowest degree. That's the Psalms. That's the whole theme of the Psalms. I know. It's crazy, isn't it? It's is the alleluia. Right. But, but here's the thing. You've, you've got to look at that as, okay, this was the vision for when the church is talking in Vatican II about participation in the liturgy. Like first and foremost, we're talking about praying the mass. That's, that's number one. But number two is how do we get people more actively involved in the mass? It's their parts, right? It's their parts of the mass, so their response and with your spirit. I see what you're saying. That's so this, their part. This is meant to encourage
0: active participation.
2: Of this the is faithful. the vision of what, okay. of how it looks when it comes to mass or when it comes to singing. Yeah, and then
0: yeah, these other parts yeah. like the Alleluia before the gospel that was a priestly part. Now it's a Kind of a communal thing, but... Or done by a choir.
2: It it, it can be done by a choir in such a way that your role is to actively listen. Like the Gloria, for example. The Gloria is left in the second degree because there are so many beautiful Glorias that your average person can't sing, but they're beautiful, and they're holy. Now, wait.
0: Okay, so this idea of actively listening, I know it's there, Mm -hmm. but is that what they envision for the majority of these things like participation of the faithful here really means no shut up and listen. No it, no, it doesn't, no, it doesn't mean job. that.
2: That's why certain things are left for that. So you're going to have uh, those other suitable hymns. There's a lot of beautiful polyphonic like chants that can be sung that the people are not going to be able to sing. That's a perfect, uh, the perfect time to, to have a choir or Scola sing. One of those is like after communion, when the priest is purifying the vessels and people are praying you, you would offer this beautiful piece of music that is difficult and challenging, but it's not meant for people to be sung. It's meant for people to just listen yeah, to it's and meditative. enjoy. Yeah. It's meditative, right? Offertory is another one. There's nothing for the people to do at that moment than pray and offer themselves on the altar. And so you offer a musical piece that they actively listen to. But the, uh, the responses are not meant to be complex, they're meant to be done in a way where people can respond, and if you look at the Roman Missal, it gives like the responses are very simple it's so that people can easily participate and sing their parts
0: now you've said that um all of this has been transcribed like the we, in 1967, when they had made Musicum Sacrum, yeah. everything was still Latin, antiphons. It, it wasn't. It was a hybrid of English Gregorian and Latin. chant is Latin. I mean, yeah. it is Latin. But there have been a lot of transcriptions. So you can do this stuff in English with the same tones and the same musical annotation, right?
2: Yeah. So, I mean, it's better to say that during the 60s, so Sacrosanctum Concilium was 64, the first revised missile was sixty-five. Then you had a second revision, in I think in sixty-six, and then you had Musicum Sacrum in sixty-seven, and then you had the Novus Ordo in sixty-nine. So you already have translations. Well, you what you've got is crazy. Imagine getting a new germ three years in a row, or imagine getting two new germs and then getting another document of music. Do they know what germ is. <laughs> You got to define germ. Oh, sorry. Uh, a germ is a, called... Germ, the...
0: during, during a time of pandemic, Yes, you need to define a germ. A, g-
2: a germ is a general instruction for the Roman Missal, G-I-R-M. Okay, so it's, it's, R-M. The, it's the rules on how you do it's the Mass. It's the rules on how to do the Mass, yeah. yeah. So like imagine, you're, imagine you're a pastor of a parish, and two years in a row they change the general instructions on you. Like it took you. It, it takes you a while to adjust to one, yeah, let alone a second. You got to
0: teach all the people. Totally get
2: used to new prayers, and, and then you get a document on the implementation of music, and then you're trying to implement that, and then boom, they drop a whole new mass on you.
1: Have you met our beloved Monsignor Ken Leone?
2: Uh, no, no. He works yet. at
1: the seminary. He was ordained in '67. That's. Could you
2: imagine? <laughs> no, I can't. <laughs> I can't.
1: So. Um, I want to give Mike a chance to ask uh, any other questions because <laughs> I cut him off about the parish stuff.
2: Yeah, and that's right. Um,
1: I have a. I got my million dollar question for you though. I know, I know. And you know that's coming. I you know exactly. You know exactly Probably. the nuclear question I want to ask. Probably. Um, but I don't want to. I don't want to clip because uh, I feel like we we kind of missed that earlier. So well, did, did uh, yeah. you want to go back into specific stuff? Well, I
2: wanted to talk about the cultural stuff because I think yeah. that's helpful. Well,
1: but, that's the that's the question. Oh, no, yeah. I think we're okay. I think we're talking about the same thing here. Yeah. What which is what you captivated me on yes. last summer, That's which right. is why the hell <laughs> are we singing 70s folk music all the time? Yeah. yeah. Like, why are we doing that? Like I, I just remember sitting at your rectory and you were talking, and I was like, because I, I I guess I've never been our generation of guys like and I was like John Paul still, it wasn't, it wasn't Pope Benedict, so like John Paul's wearing all these goofy headdresses and he's traveling, <laughs> you know, like liturgically, things are still kind of, you know. Um, but then the Benedict thing came and guys got ordained and they kind of picked it up. And we have some, we have some guys in the companions who do a great job with this stuff. But I, I had never really thought much about it. And then I was like, wait a second. Will's got a point here. Why, why are we singing 70s folk music? yeah Like why, it hasn't changed. It hasn't developed and there it has is, a little bit, but. but... But there's, for the most part, huge, huge pushback yeah. on this. And people do not like it. And we have not seen success so far yeah. at, at, uh, of re-implementing sacred music, partially because there's such an intense, yeah. sentimental connection to this particular music, which to our generation has basically no effect. Yeah. We just kind of ignore it or put up with it. Sure. Yeah. And And that's what I'd love to hear you go into.
2: Okay, so I have, there are two responses I want to make. First, I want to talk about the folk, and then I want to talk about why baby boomers. Okay, because I think that's important, because this is what I've been wrestling with since I moved to my new parish, and kind of, you know, when you move to a new parish, you kind of, you get to to think about what you did before, and, and I've been pondering these two questions. So there's a great book out there called Why Catholics Can't Sing. I can't remember the author's name but this is where I get the answer to the folk question from. And I think his argument is pretty well-founded. So um, we have a huge influx in the 20th century, late 19th century, 20th century, of Irish immigrants. Okay, And they were, of all the immigrants, they were the ones who assimilated into the American Catholic Church faster than anybody else. So when they came over, they still kept their Irish culture, they still kept their Irish barrios, their universities, you know, the Fighting Irish, Notre Dame, but they... Um, they assimilated themselves into the American church. They did not see themselves as Irish Catholics. They did culturally, but when it came to like, Catholicism, it was, we're American Catholics. They assimilated the American identity pretty quickly. And with them came the, the low mass as the predominant mass that you would attend. Now, why is that? Well, Ireland went through intense persecution and masses were celebrated in secret uh, for a long time. And so the custom in Ireland was the low mass. They did not bring over a particular style of Irish Catholic liturgical music. You have Spanish chant, you have French pieces, you have Polish pieces, you even have Latin American polyphonic chant. I have a CD of Latin American polyphonic chant, but the Irish didn't bring that. They brought the custom and tradition of the low mass as the primary experience of the Sunday liturgy, okay? Which is not sung. It's recite, the low mass is the recited mass by the priest while everybody else, either they had a missal and they followed along or they just prayed the rosary. And Irish, they pray the fastest rosary in the history of humanity, man. Oh.
1: I vouch for that. I heard a mass oh and gosh. rosary in 20 minutes in Dublin one time.
2: Oh Yeah, Knock Shrine. I was like... I couldn't believe how fast they we were going. I couldn't keep up, you know? I was in my 20s at the time. Anyway, so they come over. They bring no real liturgical musical tradition with them, okay? Then um, the Novus Ordo hits. Musicum Sacrum hits. And there's still this desire for singing, okay? But you don't have the English chant at that point. You still have um, the Latin chant the Latin chant, and now everything shifted in the vernacular. Well, you, there were attempts were made to try to cram the English into the Gregorian modes without adapting them, and it sounded awful because those modes were not meant to clothe the English text. They were designed to clothe the Latin text. And so meanwhile, you got people scrambling to try to figure out how are we going to do this, making terrible attempts, but what do you do as a local parish? You've you got this huge pressure to do everything in English now. You can't do these Gregorian modes anymore. It doesn't sound right with English. So what do you do? You've got to come up with... Well, you use hymns that you've you've had before, but then you come up with new hymns. And what music do Irish Catholics bring to the table? Folk music. And so now you have a whole new category of religious hymns in the folk style that does come from the Irish heritage that has, has assimilated pretty quickly into the American Catholic church. But
0: back, but back in Ireland,
2: these were secular songs and it was, it was right. Not the tune, the melodies were some of them. these, yeah.
0: this kind of music was in the liturgy. Exactly.
2: Oh, and it was also not familiar. Like it wasn't permitted anyway. Well, yeah. And the low mass was the common experience because they had celebrated mass in silence for so long. All right. So you, you got this
0: folk music. I, I guess the thought I had when when John was asking his question is so why do we hang on to it? Sentimental yeah. value, baby. <laughs>
2: yeah. Well, so that's part of it. Though, so the, the I'll get to you're that. talking about like the yeah, '60s and
0: that. the '70s, soon after the yeah council.
2: Yeah, so that's the next that's the next part. The next part is why the baby boomer generation because what I found, and I don't want to single out. Like everybody in this group, but the vast majority of complaints I got were from baby boom generation or people born between 1946 and 1964. Okay. They're a group of people that were born at the end of World War II. There was a huge boom economically, a huge boom uh, with regards to children. That's why they're called the baby boom generation. And times were changing after World War II. So you have a booming economy, lots of kids. You now have an urbanization going on, so people are moving into the cities for jobs. There's not this expectation that they have to follow their family business, take over their family farm, so they can actually go to high school, finish high school, even go to college and finish college, figure out who they want to be, what they want to do with their life. So you have this extended period of adolescence, and at the same time, you have music now, being mass-produced and created and produced and sold to entertain this new consumer base, which is this, these young teenagers.
1: So for the first time in human history, music is marketed to a generation.
2: Bingo. Before, and, you and made it. And sells an identity. You got it.
1: Which is why, if you're like me and you talk about generation stuff, you don't talk about generations before the boomers right you, you don't you know, get the gen, gen x more and those, these things, but like yeah my great my great grandfather i don't know I don't know how I would distinguish him from my great 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 grandfather That's right That's Who had lived right. in the same village, Czernovice, right. in the Czech Republic yeah and worked on the same land you know
2: Bingo. so yeah
1: so but it was the marketing right
2: right, so music takes on a whole new role with this young group of baby boom teenagers, okay? Um, This is when you've got Elvis, Johnny Cash, Jerry Lee Lewis, right? Now, now none of those guys I mentioned were baby boomers, but the predominant people that were listening to their music were baby boomers, okay? Now, what happens is, eventually, people start to, or the culture starts to get this idea, we need to have young people making more music for young people, Uh, And this also happened in film. So I watched this documentary on George Lucas in Star Wars. And George Lucas says in this documentary, he says, "Uh, my first film, American Graffiti, uh, which was in the late 60s or early 70s. I think it was late 60s. I think it was 68 or 69. Anyways, he said, I was hired as a young director to produce a movie, as a young producer to produce a movie for young people. It was the first like for us, by us, like movement. You know, so you have music and you have movies and you have all this entertainment that's being made by young people for young people. And music kind of captured that scene. And it was also a revolutionary time period. If you think about the 60s, you know, Um, you have equality, social justice movements. You've got uh, the protests of the Vietnam War. You've got sexual revolution going on. And at the same time, you have Vatican II. You know, <laughs> and the Novus Ordo. <laughs>
1: Well, when you read Ratzinger a lot, he's always pointing back to the cultural revolutions of 1968. That's right. Which uh, which was the turning point. Kind of when yeah. Western civilization blew up yep. again. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, student riots all over Europe, certainly all over Germany. He's seeing this. He's in Tübingen. He's yep. in Munich, and he's seeing. Um, but it's important to remember that it just as a cultural break that... Uh, that that defines that generation. And again, we're not imputing moral failure here. We're just saying they lived through a, a, an unbelievable cultural revolution. Right. And the music was part of their identity in a very intense way. I think my the way my dad talks about the Beatles... Yeah. I mean, it's just like, you know...
2: Same way my dad talks about Johnny Cash.
0: And I think you have, you have all kinds of negative things going on, but the music was the positive. Yeah. And I think... Uh, you, that might be said of the, the church experience too. And the folk was well, always related to warm feelings, positivity, optimism, um, togetherness, these kinds of things
2: that experimentation. So that was a big thing of the 60s, and that carried into the 70s. So uh, I literally, when we were cleaning out an office in my last parish, we found a songbook by Carrie Landry, okay? And it's called High God. Okay, and so we we looked at this songbook. It was designed for children's mass. Okay, and literally the opening song for mass that he recommends is a song called "Giant Love Ball." Ooh, I'm like a (laughs) big giant love ball bouncing around the sea. Big (laughs) giant love ball. No, I'm not kidding. You do this on the organ. (laughs) That's literally what it is. And I'm reading this, and I'm like, this is like take the sexual revolution. Uh, apply it to like children's mass. It's, it, it's it's experimentation, like drugs and sexual. It's just total experimentation. That's with, amazing. It's unlike like
0: imagining the priest dressed up like a Teletubby. Go
2: <laughs> Google it later. Hi God, giant love ball. It's crazy. Giant love ball. And uh, d- but this is the kind of stuff that was that was played around with following the, in the wake of the sixties. Right. but here's, so here's my theory and it's not really provable and it's not the end all be all of everything. Okay. So it's one piece of the puzzle, but here's why I think baby boomers really struggle to embrace a, a movement back to chant because first of all, the music played such a role in their, their childhood and development that it almost, it's a part of their identity. Not, the speci- not just the specific music that was played in that time period, but also what music has, the effect it has on them. what and, it means. And church music. What it means This was, the, this to was the kind
0: of prayer that we had at church. Right. And, it, a chi- and a child's experience of church is the most pure. So as you get older, right. you're always looking for that. I felt connected with God. I go. felt like this was very meaningful to me, all these things. And a lot of times it's connected
2: with this. Yeah, just the music is part of the, deeply part of the prayer. Because most of the baby boomers I talk to, when I ask them about why they're so angry, they'll say, well, well, Vatican II got rid of that. And then I'll show them the document of Vatican II, and they'll say, I, I, I can't believe it. No, 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 Vatican II got rid of that. You literally will show them that that's a misconception, and they reject it, and they won't embrace the actual document that you show them. And be, so it run, it's not an intellectual issue. It's an issue of I was formed to think that this is right and to feel that this is right, and this has become a part of my identity. This is my theory. I think when we introduce sacred music, there are a lot of baby boomers who get upset because we're attacking their identity, and we don't even realize we're attacking their identity. That's what I think.
0: So be gentle about the identity. Yeah. I We're running out of time, but I... <laughs> I'm not not just as a devil's advocate. Yeah, well, I'm gonna. I could be wrong. I'm it's gonna continue theory. this uh, this conversation with you out, outside of this podcast because I'm curious to know what you think about um, how chant hasn't always been there, and even chant is influenced by uh, various cultural forms of music. Sure. So sure, all of these different European kind of. Uh, musical traditions. well, I would say Greek, the chant formed modes, the culture, you know, Greek modes of music, sure, the and it, there's probably, yeah, a reciprocal influence. but is there room the way that vernacular language has room because it's it 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 fits the way that people communicate oh, yeah. in time. Is there room for the influence of even popular music? Not to say, I want Justin Bieber in the liturgy, uh, just say he it. can sing in the choir it, he just can sing it. in my say choir, it. he can sing in your children's just choir say it you want <laughs> you want the bees um, <laughs> so I think it can be I think it can be too quickly done, I think it can be overdone, of course, True. but there is influence of like the greater culture, maybe it's like high music or something like that, like you have to distinguish some sort of um, kind of what we would call classical music or a, a sort of continuity in polyphony. So there is music outside of the uh, Gregorian chant. Yeah, absolutely. Polyphony is sac- sacred.
2: The, this is the second name mentioned after Gregorian chant.
0: Yeah. Which has Gregorian but chant
2: as its base. I want
0: to say, is there room for um, the, the influence of other music, particularly in the hymnody? Fine, I, I'm a... I want to hang on to the Gregorian chant um, for a lot of reasons and some of them, you know, that you've outlined in, in part. And I think your main point here is that we were never meant to throw it out and that it's just a point of continuity that is uh, intended. Um, But then, yeah, that's my question is like, is there room for the influence of like America is a new thing. It's a new thing. It's the blend of tons of cultures, lots of history uh, coming together, not a very old country, but um, there 's a kind of a new reality here that presents some novelty to the experience of Roman Catholicism sure that I wonder how that um, relates to music and I think it 's like i don 't want to push that I think they pushed that way too quick, and that was part of the problem it 's like yeah well let 's just start experimenting. With we the with the goofy right. God Ball or whatever,
2: <laughs> giant and giant love and, ball, and
0: like we'll just throw out everything and start throwing in the folk music, right? Yeah. Or these innovative ways. I mean, they did attempt to write lyrics that are sometimes scriptural, sometimes you know theological reflection. I don't think it was terribly profound most of the time, yeah. but there was a, attempts to modify it, and you could have more blatant. Crossover like uh, the um, the guitarist and lead in Craig, where I was uh, assigned. Once upon a time, he used to set the responsorial psalms to classic rock riffs, yeah. and then check out in the you know I'm in the congregation no. to see if the people would recognize them, and then he would <laughs> chuckle, you know. And in Latin America, I've heard the
2: Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? That's from Willie that? Wonka. Right? <laughs> yeah.
0: Um, Gene Wilder's weird. <laughs> okay, so I've also heard in Latin America like parts that um, are written from Beatles songs, you know, and then just applied. Hallelujah. Yeah, oh, no. hallelujah. that one's a terrible example. Yeah, I, know. I think Father John celebrated a wedding to that at one point. And it was <laughs> it was officially the Hallelujah. Oh,
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: All right, but I, I mean, we'll have to talk about that because ha- I do think...
2: I can, well, can I give one more a crazy example? Okay. Um, so this was a... Uh, you can find this online. It's glory to God, glory to God, glory to God in the highest. My little pony, my little pony, what is friendship all about? We, I mean, keep... <laughs> <laughs>
1: Keith, I know. Keith and I, know. I have
2: looked at all this stuff. We listen to all this stuff.
1: I, I, Sorry. We'll let you have the final word here, but I would just say um, <laughs> I love uh, G.K. Chesterton's line um, anything worth doing is worth doing badly. <laughs> I don't know if it applies to chant. <laughs> and I have to say, sure, a lot of our guys who have thought they're really freaking awesome because they're like, oh, I'm doing sacred music. It's like, this sucks. This is horrible. Yeah. Your chant is, so, is worse than the... I couldn't believe it, but I, I've experienced it at some of our young guys' parishes. I'm like, you've actually found something worse than the folk music, <laughs> which is your chant. It is... So bad. Yeah. I mean, it literally is, it's like...
2: You got to work on it.
1: I it, And so you have, you did a great job and Axe Line's down there and there's a lot of young priests in Phoenix who are, because your bishop is encouraging this and I think it, you're a great model of it, Um but it's got to be done well yeah. because I think that this is the worst, the worst enemy of people is just hearing it and being like, this is even less inspiring than the cheesy folk.
0: Sure. Well, and for just a note of hope... I learned uh, to sing in a chant scola in seminary, and I can attest that it is, it's easy to learn how to do, and it's easy to teach people how to do. So I can think of like a million choir directors listening to this right now yeah. who are saying, oh, I have to learn like a whole new way of doing music. In part, yes, but it's actually rather simple, and it's something that people could pick up on. So I'm not saying just start throwing it out and being terrible. I'm saying um, don't despair of the fact that you have to, you don't have to be an expert, expertly trained yeah. at some university. Yeah. You could learn how to do this and do it well and build your 140 kid choir. Yeah. That's amazing. I think anybody kids love it who could have a 140 kid choir would, you know, would very quickly kind of readily do this kind of thing.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I guess my final thoughts would be, I mean, first of all, I don't want to, I don't want to label anybody, so I don't want to label the entire baby boom generation as like they hate sacred music. Cause I have, I know a lot of people of the baby boom generation who really loved sacred music.
0: Well, and the average Catholic- they weren't calling these shots. No, no. The average
2: Catholics no, no. The, who are loving no. this stuff
0: and defending it, they weren't making these decisions. Yeah, so yeah. I don't think we can hold it against yeah. them, you know?
2: And, and, and I would say to all the people, like, because there might be, like, uh, you know, some of my parishioners in my current parish being like, well, when are you going to implement sacred music, you know, up in Flagstaff? And it's like, well, here's what I learned this stuff takes time. You know, it took, uh, it's going to take time, and we got to do it right, and we got to do it slowly. Uh, what's most important is I've already introduced the most important thing for musicum sacrum, which is we sing the parts of the mass. And I took bullets when I got to my new parish; like people had never heard that. Uh, I got angry emails, and people will say some of the most shameful and horrible things to their priest when he's trying to do something good. So, my only comment to those out there who really hate sacred music, who disagree with me, that's fine. I totally understand. If your pastor is trying to do some of this stuff, don't don't. Shame him. Don't send him angry emails. He's trying to do something beautiful and good. Like give him a shot. Hang with him. The most important thing is that, you know, if if, if it's gonna be implemented, and this is what I would say to priests, start with singing the parts of the Mass. Don't worry about the hymn. I mean you can get rid of the heretical hymns. There's some that are just terrible, but you know, like Big China Love Ball, uh, <laughs> I'd get rid of that. But just start They bring it back. <laughs> <laughs> just Just be patient. Start with singing the Mass, those parts. Let that settle in. Let people see the beauty of that. I sing the words of consecration at every Sunday Mass. I love it. I dare you to try it. Sing the words of consecration. It'll change the way you pray the Eucharistic prayer, man. I I get teared up sometimes when I'm singing those words.
0: I think my people would get scared.
2: (laughs) (laughs) The the tears would come from cringing. (laughs) Anyways, that's all I'd say.
1: Well, thanks, man. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, we got to cap it here I because uh, we're at the hour mark and I can hear Goebel snickering in his uh, record right now, <laughs> eating his bonbons, but this has been great. <laughs> so uh, shout-outs to close it off. I'll start with one here and then pass it off to you guys. Um, we usually don't do shout-outs for people, but Andrew Olson is one of my boys, so this is to the Starbuck family in Phoenix.
2: All right. Do you know them? Oh, yeah, I know Andrew.
1: Andrew, Susanna, Peter, James, Aria, Emma, and Gwendolyn... Thanks for listening, Starbucks family. I've awesome. heard a lot of great things about you, I look forward to meeting you. And uh, yeah,
0: as long as we're in Phoenix right now, well, kind of. Uh, Father Dan Vanya, what's up? Yeah. Uh, Father Matt Henry, what's up? Oh yeah. Uh, my friends oh, yeah. in Phoenix, God bless you guys. Uh, thank you for your service, and uh, well, God bless you to all the uh, all of the music directors and all of the parish. Uh, Canters and choirs, and everybody involved in sacred music. Uh, we just had a, we had a, they're laughing at me for thanking the whole world. <laughs> shout out to the whole world. We just did an interview uh, with Nathan, Father Nathan's dad, and he had recently become a cantor. So it made me nice. pray for cantors the last two days. Yeah, that's awesome. And uh,
2: that's a shout out to y'all cantors. Yeah. Uh, two shout outs shout out to all my parishioners in Flagstaff. I'm coming home soon. Looking forward to seeing you. I'm going to miss all you guys in, uh, in Denver, especially the companions. You guys have changed my life more than you know. But uh, shout out to all my peeps back in Flagstaff. I'm excited to see you. And then, last but not least, shout out to Reggie, the golf pro at Top Golf Centennial, yes. <laughs> who, in between lessons, was watching me swing and came over and said, Hey, man, you got a really good swing. Can we just tweak one thing here? And I'm like, yeah. So He basically gave me a couple free lessons, and he's the man. Way to go, Reggie. Thank you, Reggie. All right, God bless you, brother. Thanks for joining us. Hey, this has been great. Thanks, guys.
1: Well, thanks again. We're gonna miss you, man. Uh, you're a true companion, your brother. Look forward to having you back soon. But blessings on this next chapter as you at home. Mike, you wanna close it off?
0: Dude, am I supposed to sing something? <laughs> <laughs>